and welcome to both the Millennial Politics Podcast and the Brand New Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My gender pronouns are she, her, hers, and you are listening to our joint series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by Jorge Martin, International Secretary of the Hands-Off Venezuela Campaign. Thanks for coming on. Uh, It's my pleasure. Of course. So, for starters, what exactly is the Hands-Off Venezuela Campaign? The Hands of Venezuela campaign was established in 2002 in the aftermath of the coup in Venezuela, the April 2002 coup. And it's a trade union-based solidarity campaign. And our main aim is to oppose imperialist interference and uh, meddling into the internal affairs of Venezuela and to build direct links between uh, working people in Venezuela and working people around the world uh, to share and share experiences about revolutionary developments, uh, particularly in the field of workers' control, factory occupations, and so on. It's basically a solidarity campaign with the Bolivarian uh, Revolution. And what exactly is the Bolivarian Revolution? Well, there's there's many answers to this, but just to summarize it, uh, the Bolivarian Revolution is the revolutionary process which has been going on in Venezuela since 1998. You could say that's one of the starting points when President Chavez was elected for the first time as president of uh, Venezuela. And is a deep, uh, very deep, profound, deep going uh, process of social transformation, of uh, political participation of sections of the population who were previously excluded from the political process, the workers, the poor, the peasants. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a process that is going on at the rank and file through revolutionary organizations from the bottom up and also at the level of the government, the Chavez government uh, that was in power between 1998 and 2013. And it was then uh, succeeded or replaced by, by the Maduro government. So it works at many different levels. It's a very broad movement and there are different opinions and shades of political opinion within it. There's more revolutionary, radical elements. The further down you go into the grassroots and uh, there are perhaps more reformist or moderate elements right at the top or more bureaucratic elements even. But it's basically uh, the, the, the Russian revolutionary Trotsky described the revolution as the direct interference of the masses in the political affairs. And I think that this is what's been going on in Venezuela for the last uh, 20 years or more. Uh, people who, as I said, were previously excluded from the political process have taken the future into their own hands, have occupied land, uh, have occupied factories, have organized themselves at the level of the neighborhoods in order to deliver health care, education, and a whole number of other things. And there's been a, pro- a process of uh, political engagement and politicization of uh, the, the mass of, of the people. Could you dig a little more into how the revolution has transformed Venezuela? What have been its successes and struggles? Well, right now, Venezuela is living through a deep economic crisis, uh, which started maybe four or five years ago. And so some of the gains of the revolution have been rolled back or have been eroded. But at its peak, the Venezuelan revolution had delivered massive gains in many different fields, for instance, in the field of education, where they rolled out a program which was called uh, Barrio Adentro, of delivering uh, primary health care in, in the neighborhoods, in the poorest areas of the, of the country, 
with the help of uh, Cuban doctors and medical personnel, so that people who had never seen a doctor had never had access to hospital care or primary GP, um, um, general practitioner care or anything like this, were now for the first time covered by universal free healthcare. Uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people uh, underwent cataract operations and recovered their eyesight, not only in Venezuela, but this program was then also extended to many other countries. There were also many gains in the field, in the field of education, for instance, where, for instance, the, the number of people enrolled in higher education went from 800,000 in 1998 to uh, 2.1 million in 2013. And university higher education is free of charge in uh, Venezuela. There was a massive incorporation of people coming from students coming from the poorer backgrounds into higher education. And this was going on at all levels of the education system. We also uh, delivered the Mission Robinson educational program, which eradicated illiteracy in the course of two or three years. It was recognized by UNESCO. Uh, they have more recently delivered a plan of social housing through which they, which is called Mission, Grand Mission Vivienda. And th this has delivered, uh, 2.5 million social housing units free of charge to people in need, people who previously lived in shanty towns or were completely homeless. And so there's many different areas of uh, achievements and advances of the Bolivarian Revolution at its peak. There was a massive reduction of uh, poverty levels, uh, malnourishment, and so on. And this is really what solidified the support of the masses of working people for the Bolivarian Revolution, which delivered, uh, I think it's 23 or 24 election victories in this period of time. Uh, but apart from these concrete gains, there were many other gains, like, for instance, very progressive trade union and labor rights. Uh, legislation that was introduced finally in 2012 and then in 2014. There was a whole process of factory occupations, uh, nationalization of key sectors of the economy, um, and generally in the field of political involvement of the masses of, of working people. There were many advances. I mean, millions of people were part of different types of organizations, from Bolivarian circles to communal councils. Uh, healthcare committees, urban land committees, agrarian reform uh, committees, uh, rank and file, class struggle, trade unions. Uh, and then on top of this, there was a massive debate about socialism, which was opened by President Chavez in 2005, when he said that the future of the Bolivarian Revolution is to go through to, towards socialism and that capitalism should be abolished. And this opened a massive debate in the whole of the country with many different points of view about what socialism uh, should look like, how, how to achieve it, uh, the role of different sections of society in it. So I would say that these are perhaps the most important achievements of the revolution. Uh, concrete gains in, in the fields of education, healthcare, housing, uh, the massive participation of people in the political process, and also a, a very thorough, deep-going political debate about socialism and, and the future. And what exactly happened in 2002, and how did it affect the revolution? 
Uh, in 2002, the Bolivarian Revolution was very young and I would say inexperienced. Uh, Chavez had won the election in, in 1998 and shortly afterwards he uh, called for a referendum uh, in which the idea of convening a constituent assembly was approved. There was, there was a constitu constituent assembly. Uh, there was a, a very, very wide-ranging debate about the new constitution, the Bolivarian Constitution. And then, uh, after all this was over, uh, in 2001, he then introduced 49, in December, uh, December 2001, he introduced 49 enabling laws dealing with a whole number of aspects of policy. But perhaps the most important one was the state control over the oil company, which was already nationalized, but operated like a state within the state and more or less autonomously from, from the government and at the service of the, the interests of the big multinationals. And then uh, another one of these laws that were, were introduced in 2001, December, was the agrarian reform law. Now, none of these laws were socialist or infringed on capitalist property rights. The agrarian reform law was very mild, progressive, but mild uh, uh, agrarian reform, which respected property rights, which uh, basically said that anyone who couldn't prove ownership of the land and the, the, the continuation of title deeds for this land, the, and the, the land was idle for big extensions of land, the, this land will be expropriated with compensation at full market prices. Uh, but this was too much already for the oligarchy. The, the block at the top of, the, of Venezuelan society, composed of capitalists, landowners, bankers, and many of them had interests which were tied to U.S. imperialism and foreign capital. And they decided that this was enough, that this person who had been elected, Chavez, was, uh, was, uh, was reckless and was a threat to their interests. And because he was in a very close connection with the people, the ordinary working class people, that this was a danger to their power and privileges. And they decided to organize a coup. A coup which was nothing new in Latin America. We've seen many examples of such a thing in many different countries, from Guatemala in 1954 to Chile in 1973. And it's always the same thing. The local oligarchy, in conjunction with U.S. imperialism, organize a coup, and uh, the coup succeeds, and a progressive government is removed from power and replaced by a military dictatorship. But, but this time... This was not the case. Uh, the coup did succeed for a very short space of time, from the 11th of April 2002 until the 13th of April 2002, but it was defeated very quickly by the intervention of the masses on the scene. The people from the poor neighborhoods in Caracas and other parts of the country came down from the hills where they live. Uh, they surrounded the presidential palace, they surrounded the military barracks, and they demanded the president they had elected be brought back. Uh, Chavez had been uh, kidnapped, had been taken into, a, into an island off, off the Caribbean coast, and uh, a new president had been sworn in, who was at the same time the president of the Bosses Association, uh, Fede Cameras. His name was uh, Pedro Carmona. And so this, vi this, this in intervention of the masses on, on the scene, though they were, they were attacked by the forces of the state, by the military, and so on, and the coup had been extremely well prepared, 
with the, with the participation of the United States, the Spanish Embassy, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, all the owners of the main newspapers and uh, media outlets, um, the capitalists, the bankers, everyone, the landowners, uh, the coup was defeated. And this is what was extraordinary about, about what happened in Venezuela. That uh, For the first time, I think, uh, anywhere in Latin America, uh, a, a U.S.-sponsored coup had been defeated by the revolutionary action of the masses on the streets. And this gave the people confidence uh, and unleashed a new wave of the Bolivarian Revolution in which uh, people were moving forward, the government was moving forward, uh, still, there was no debate about socialism at this point. This came later on in 2005, but I would say that 2002 was, a, was an important turning point. It needs to be said as well that in the aftermath of the coup, almost no one was put on trial uh, among the coup plotters because there was a decision of the Supreme Court of Justice, which was dominated by the old regime, that said that in fact there had not been a coup. There was a vacuum of power caused by the resignation of the president. In fact, he, he never resigned. He was taken away. Uh, and that uh, Pedro Carmona just happened to pass by and filled that vacuum of power. So, so there were no grounds legally to put anyone on trial for that. And furthermore, Chavez, when he came back, when he was returned by the masses to the presidential palace, he made a speech in which he asked the opposition for negotiations, for talks, for dialogue. There were negotiating tables open with the opposition and so on. And he had a very, uh, uh, very mild attitude towards those who had just carried out a military coup against uh, him. And uh, the opposition responded to this appeal for negotiations. Uh, by preparing another attempted coup, which took place in December 2002 in the form of a, of a bosses lockout and a sabotage of the oil uh, company, which was the main source of revenue for, for the government, still is. Uh, and this is the constant pattern that's, that's happened for the last 20 years. Um, the opposition and the United States uh, administration carry out uh, a coup or an attempt at destabilizing, destabilizing the government, economic sabotage, sanctions, diplomatic pressure, and uh, the Venezuelan government once and again uh, defeats this uh, with the mobilization of the masses on the streets, and then offers a hand for negotiation, which the opposition uh, uses as a sign of weakness, and as a sign that they, they should prepare for the next round of the next attempt to overthrow the, the government. So while many people say that Chavez was a dictator, an authoritarian ruler, I mean, even in 2002, the 400 people who were present at the swearing-in of the new coup-appointed president, Pedro Carmona, or most of them, continue to be the leaders of the main opposition parties and continue to plot and uh, attempt to undermine by legal and illegal uh, means the, the, the democratic will of the people for the next 20 years. How exactly were the United States and Western nations involved in the 2002 coup attempts? Um, and w what exactly necessitated the hands-off Venezuela campaign? Yes, it was clear at the time that uh, the United States were involved in the planning of the coup. And subsequently to the defeat of the coup, a whole number of documents came uh, to light 
for instance, cables and communications between the U.S. Embassy and the, and the U.S. administration in, in Washington. They knew that the coup was being uh, prepared. They were in contact with the people who were preparing the coup. And uh, in public and private declarations, they encouraged them to go ahead. They uh, said that they, they, they made them know that they had the support from the United States. And the day after the coup was very revealing because on the 12th of April, when they thought that they had won, the, everyone was uh, congratulating the coup plotters on their success. There were editorials in the main newspapers, the Washington Post, the New York Times. The U.S. administration came uh, out openly, recognizing the coup-imposed uh, president. Uh, so there was a direct uh, implication. Of, of the United States in this coup. And the reason was very clear because Venezuela is a, an oil-rich country which had now has the, the largest proven oil reserves anywhere in the, in the world. And uh, not only this, but also the role of the Spanish embassy was clear and was later revealed in, in, in a lot of uh, detail. And for all these reasons, we thought that it was important to form the hands of Venezuela campaign uh, first to combat and, and dispel the, the, the fog of lies and half-truths in the, in the mass media in the West about what was really going on in Venezuela. Second, to build uh, active solidarity and to oppose the actions of, of our own governments in the West in supporting uh, reactionary coup plotting in Venezuela. And third, as I said, to, to build direct links between working people in Venezuela and abroad, because we have a lot to learn from their experience, and, and they can also learn from, from ours. And why is it that all of these so-called independent news outlets, CNN, The Washington Post, The New York Times, in the United States, why are they in support of the coup that's happening right now? Why is it that all of this misinformation is coming out? not by state-run news outlets, but by news outlets across the political spectrum. Yes. Um, well, first of all, we have to understand that uh, the, the mass media, the big means of communication, be, be this uh, the, the printed uh, newspapers or the TV stations, they are controlled by a handful of big corporations that uh, obviously have also economic and political uh, interests. They, they defend the interests of the ruling class in the United States. They are part of the ruling class in the United States. And what we have seen over the last uh, 20 years is that it doesn't, it, you talk about uh, across the political spectrum, but, but in relation to Venezuela, what we have seen in the last 20 years is that it doesn't really matter whether it's a democratic administration or a Republican administration, the policy has always been uh, at root, it's been the same policy. We shouldn't forget, for instance, that the current sanctions regime against Venezuela was first introduced on, on the basis of an executive order by uh, President Obama in 2015, which declared that the situation in Venezuela presented a, a danger to U.S. national security. And on the basis of that executive order, all the other sanctions have been introduced later on uh, by different administrations, including currently under, under President Trump. Um, so, in reality, Democrats and Republicans they just represent different shades of opinion when it comes to foreign policy. 
And in the case of Venezuela, this is very clearly uh, demonstrated. And therefore, even even though some of the newspapers have been slightly critical on one one aspect or another, for instance, the the New York Times published an article revealing that already back in 2017, uh, President Trump was asking his advisors to make plans for military intervention in Venezuela, which which they refused at that time. They said, no, this is not a good idea. Not because they didn't agree with the final aim, which is removing the, the elected president of Venezuela, but because they thought that military intervention was a risky proposition to achieve those those aims. Uh, so some some revelations like that have been made by the by the, by some of the big newspapers in the United States. But when it comes down to it, the the current attempted coup, which which is what is happening now, I, in my opinion, they all support the policy of uh, of the U.S. administration. And uh, I think that this uh, the fear they have of the Bolivarian Revolution, the fear of a good example. Uh, the threat of a good example, the threat of, of the idea that there's a country not far away from the United States where people are enjoying free health care, free education, and uh, and this they cannot allow to remain. It is a direct threat to the interests of the ruling class in, in the United States. And now they see that they, they think that there's a window of opportunity to overthrow this revolution, and they're going in, and they all have the same opinion. They might differ in 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 as much as the the tactics or or the the means in order to overthrow the government in Venezuela, but they all agree that that's a desirable outcome to to be achieved. And from the news reporting in the U.S., you would get the sense that this is a democratic coup. That this is what the people want. That the people do not support Maduro and support the U.S. effort to help remove him from power. Is this true? Well, of course, in Venezuela, there are different uh, opinions. This is a heavy, highly polarized uh, society where people have, of course, different political opinions. But I can tell you one thing. Last year, when there was the presidential election, uh, President Chavez, uh, President Maduro, sorry, at, at the time he was standing in this election, there was an opposition candidate, another section of the opposition decided to boycott. But the percentage of the vote that Maduro received in relation to the total electorate, but the total electorate was about 31% of the total uh, people eligible to vote. Now, if you compare that, say, the United States, you can see that uh, President Trump, when he was uh, elected, he received only about 23 or 24% of the total eligible uh, people who were eligible to vote. Uh, in neighboring uh, Colombia, the president of, of Colombia, Duque, was elected with only 21% of the electoral roll. In uh, Argentina, Macri received more or less the same amount. In uh, Brazil, Bolsonaro, in the first round, received more or less the same amount. So the idea that Maduro has no support, has lost all support in the country and is just uh, staying in power because of the position of the army, which is basically the idea that's been put out by the mass media in the United States, is false. And it's deliberately 
put out in this way uh, in order to justify this intervention. Uh, and this is not the case. On the 23rd of January, uh, when Guaido, this uh, president of the National Assembly, appointed himself as president, there was a big rally of the opposition. And the rally of the opposition was a sizable rally. It must have been tens of thousands of people there. But at the same time, in Caracas, in the same city, there was a huge rally of uh, Maduro supporters. People didn't want this, uh, this person to appoint himself president, uh, Guaido, and to be recognized by the United States. And this was never reported in the U.S. media, or at least it was never highlighted, and so on, in order to give the impression precisely that it's the people of Venezuela who are asking for military intervention or for some sort of foreign intervention. There are, of course, people in Venezuela who support this point of view, but uh, I will say, if they were so uh, confident that they, they command the majority, uh, they should have stood in the elections in, uh, in May last year, where there was an opposition candidate, and the opposition candidate, uh, Henry Falcon, was complaining bitterly that if the other sections of the opposition will have supported him, they might have won that uh, uh, election. Uh, in my opinion, if they haven't done so, it's because they're not so confident that they will actually win that election, or, or at least it will be very, very close. So rather than a situation where Maduro is completely isolated, the real truth of the, of the matter is that uh, Venezuela is highly polarized, split down the middle on this question, and there are also many people, it's a large section of, of population, who don't support either side on this question but who will not be favorable to foreign uh, imperialist intervention in the country in order to decide who the president should be. And the United States has alleged that the 2018 election was illegitimate because Maduro rigged it and banned opposition candidates from running. What is the truth about that? No, that's not really true. The 2000... Um, 18 presidential election took place before its due date uh, as a result of negotiations between the government and the opposition in the, in the, the, which took place in the Dominican Republic and they were brokered by the former Spanish president Zapatero and at these negotiations the opposition insisted that they wanted early presidential elections uh, and the, the negotiations were very advanced and then at the, at the last minute, when they already had the document, they already had the date for the elections, they already had uh, uh, agreed on international observers and, uh, and the procedure, procedures for, the, for these elections, then uh, the opposition decided to pull out from those talks. Uh, and there's a lot of speculation that this was done after a phone call from the United States and from uh, Colombia, from the Colombian president at the time, President Santos, and that a decisive section of the opposition decided to withdraw from these uh, talks and from any any idea of early presidential elections. Nevertheless, obviously the government had agreed to this and the elections went ahead. Uh, the opposition parties were not banned. They actually refused to participate. There was an op one opposition, there were actually three opposition candidates, but one was coming from the main opposition body, the MUD, the, the Democratic Unity Roundtable. And his name is Henry Falcon, who was the former governor of the state of Lara. And he stood in these elections with the support of three 
of the main opposition uh, parties uh, that supported him. Another section of the opposition decided to boycott, but that, that was their decision. They were not banned from standing. They, they could have supported Falcon, or they could have stood another uh, uh, candidate. The field was open. Uh, not only this, but then the, op- the, the opposition made a call on the United Nations not to send observers to this election. But nevertheless, there was a Latin American body of election observers that was present uh, during the elections and observed, uh, observed the elections and declared them to be fundamentally free and fair. And also former president, former Spanish president uh, Zapatero, he was uh, there as an observer. He had helped broker these deals, these talks between the opposition and the government. And uh, he also declared that the elections had been fundamentally free and fair uh, with some minor incidents that didn't affect the general, uh, the overall outcome. So, in reality, uh, the the, number of European Union countries and the United States, already before the elections took place, they had declared them to be illegitimate and unfair. And this was all in preparation for January the 10th this year, when the, the, the President Maduro was, be, was to be sworn in for a new term of office, then the, so that then they could say, no, he's not been properly elected, and then move on to recognize uh, someone else, leader of the opposition, as the, as the legitimate president. So th- this is actually what happened. The elections had participation from the opposition, Opposition parties were not banned from standing, and uh, opposition politicians did actually stand, and others decided to boycott. It's their, their loss. And what exactly does the opposition stand for? That is a very good question, because in this whole debate about what is happening now in Venezuela, we're given the impression that the opposition stands for humanitarian aid, for the restoration of democracy, quote-unquote, and uh, in fact, this is nothing. Uh, nothing is farther from the from the truth. Um, Guaido, the leader of the opposition, who, who proclaimed himself to be the new president, he issued about two or three weeks ago uh, his program, and he calls it uh, Plan País, the uh, plan for the country. And if you read it, this has been published in, in Spanish at least, I'm, I'm not sure if it's available in English, but if you read it, it's, it's a catalog of economic and social policies which are hair-raising, uh, which are very, very right-wing neoliberals, you will call them. And they include, for instance, the privatization of uh, nationalized companies in strategic sectors like electricity, uh, cement, uh, telecommunications, and others. The privatization or the entry of private capital in the delivery of uh, public services, particularly healthcare and education. Um, the rationalization, he says, in inverted commas, of uh, the payrolls of state-owned companies, which means mass layoffs of state or state uh, sector workers, and the opening up inverted commas, of the PDVSA oil company to foreign investment, uh, at preferential, fiscal, and, uh, and other terms. And he's already said that this is one of the main aims of his, uh, of his government if he, comes to, if he finally comes to power, the opening up of the oil uh, industry. 
uh, right now the, the laws that were introduced by President Chavez mm, uh, determine that any joint ventures with foreign companies ha have to be on the basis of at least 60% state ownership and, and, a, and, a, and a minority stake for foreign multinationals. This will be abolished. Uh, the amount that foreign companies have to pay in tax and royalties will be massively uh, diminished. Basically, it's just selling off the, the family silver to foreign multinationals at very cheap uh, prices. And uh, uh, U.S. Uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton has said so much in an interview with Fox News where he said, it will be, Venezuela has a lot of oil and it will be very good for the American people that this oil will be, if this oil were, were to be extracted by U.S. multinationals. Uh, I don't know if this will be good for the American people, but certainly be very good for the friends of uh, John Bolton in the, in the administration boards of the big oil uh, multinationals. And this is the main aim of this uh, attempted coup, uh, the privatization state-owned companies, uh, laws in order, in order to favor private uh, businesses, the privatization of state-owned companies, and as a consequence of all that, the abolition and the destruction of all the social programs the Bolivarian Revolution uh, uh, introduced. And I will add one more thing. In order for a government that came to power with this program to be able to implement such vicious assault on the living standards of the majority of the people and the acquired uh, conquests of the Bolivarian Revolution, they will have to use undemocratic means. They will have to destroy and smash uh, the Bolivarian organizations, the trade unions, the peasant uh, organizations, the communal councils. And in order to do that, the, we know, uh, because it's already happened, if we look at the track record of the opposition, they are known for lynching people for being the right uh, color of skin, for, for looking poor, for looking chavista, for wearing a red shirt. If they were in power, there will be lynch mobs against Bolivarian activists. This will be the opposite of the restoration of democracy, will be the destruction of democratic uh, rights for working people, for workers, peasants, and, and the poor. There's no, no doubt about that. And who exactly is Juan Guaido? What is his background? What shaped his ideology? And how did he come to power in the first place? Well, Juan, Juan Guaido was completely unknown to everyone, uh, even right up until the day when he swore, when he, when he proclaimed himself as, as the president of Venezuela. Uh, in fact, to this day, many uh, Latin American presidents who allegedly support him can't even uh, pronounce his name correctly, never mind President Trump. But uh, in fact, he was a minor figure in the opposition, He'd been a, a leader of some youth protests which uh, evolved into violent rioting against the state. Uh, a few years ago, he was elected as an MP with a very uh, low turnout, low vote in his uh, election circuit. And he was a minor figure of the opposition. But then in December, he was uh, brought to the United States. He was brought to Washington for meetings. Then he went to Brazil. Then he went to the group of Lima countries for the meetings. And he was told what to do. He, he is a character, who, a person who has been fabricated by the United States in its attempt 
to uh, engineer a regime change in uh, Venezuela, and and this is and this is how it happened. Uh, it is not so much that on the 23rd of January he proclaimed himself to be the president. It's the opposite, uh, and then he was recognized by Trump. It's the opposite. Trump, uh, the U.S. administration told him that he had to proclaim himself, and then and then he he went on and did that. Uh, in fact, on the eve of the 23rd of January proclamation, he, there were many leaders of the opposition who who didn't know what was going to happen on that day, but uh, Trump did know. And there, there's even been reports of frantic, frantic calls from Washington to Latin American capitals, to the president of uh, Spain, uh, demanding, telling them that on the day after, Guaido was going to proclaim himself and that they had to recognize him straight away. Now, what Guaido says that he is legitimate in his claim to be the president in charge, according to Article 233 of the Constitution. Now, Article 233 of the Constitution says, the Bolivarian Constitution says, that if there is a permanent absence of the president, which is not the case. I mean, we we have in Venezuela we have a president, President Maduro, who has been elected, has been sworn in on on January the 10th. But if there was a permanent absence of the president, then he claims that he can take over as the president of the National Assembly, which he was uh, appointed uh, to that position in early January. But in fact, that's not the case. If you actually read the article, which is available online in English, people can just Google it up, uh, the article says that in the absence, in the case of a permanent absence of the president, and there's a number of requirements for that to happen, then the vice president will take over, not the president of the National Assembly. So he has no legal right to his claim. Uh, and in fact, the only reason that he has any legitimacy is because Trump recognized him half an hour after he claimed himself at a street rally. He didn't even go through the motions of, of being elected by the National Assembly or the National Assembly taking a decision over this question. There was a street rally and he proclaimed himself the president of Venezuela. I mean, I've been to many street rallies. I could go to a street rally in a couple of days and proclaim myself the, the Queen of England. But that doesn't make me the Queen of England. Uh, it's completely illegal, illegitimate, and unconstitutional. Un- un- furthermore, this Article 233 says that such a president that will take over in the absence, or in the, per- in the case of permanent absence of the president, will have to call for presidential elections. This is only a temporary um, presidential position. The president will have to call for presidential elections within 30 days. He proclaimed himself as president on the 23rd of January, but we haven't seen any call for elections. The reason for this is because uh, he has no power to call for elections. He calls himself the president, but in fact he has no real uh, power that anybody uh, will obey or, or, or abide by or, or observe. Uh, there, there was a journalist in Venezuela who said he was asked so so are there two presidents in Venezuela right now what is the situation and he said look as far as I'm concerned the president of Venezuela is the person who answers the phone 
if you call the Miraflores Presidential Palace. And so far, the person who answers the phone at the Miraflores Palace is President Maduro. That's, that's the only one. And you mentioned the opposition lynching people and targeting people because of the color of their skin. How does race play into this? From the very beginning of the Bolivarian Revolution, it's been very clear that the political polarization in uh, Venezuela in favor and against the Bolivarian Revolution also has a strong uh, class and racial element to it. In the poorer neighborhoods where people tend to be more of mixed race, there is a higher percentage of uh, black people, there is a higher percentage of people of uh, indigenous uh, descent or mixed race altogether. They, uh, the support for the Bolivarian Revolution is much stronger. Uh, you can go anywhere you want in Caracas, and this is very visible in the 23 de Enero, in Antimano, in Etare, in La Pastora, in San Agustin. All the working class and poor areas of Caracas are strongholds of the Bolivarian Revolution. You go to the east of Caracas, in the middle and middle upper class areas of uh, Altamira, El Atillo, Baruta, and so on, where people tend to be more of uh, white European uh, descent, and where there is less percentage of mixed race or black people or indigenous people, then these are strongholds of the, of, of, of the opposition. And you can see this very clearly, for instance, uh, Antimano always votes 75 or 80 percent for Chavismo, or for the Bolivarian Revolution. Uh, Baruta and El Atillo always vote maybe 80, 85 percent for the opposition. And this has been like this since the very beginning, with, with slight variations over a period of time, but this is clearly the case. And when I was talking about lynchings, it was a very... Uh, significant and talked about case in 2017 uh, during the opposition Guarimbas, the violent riots the opposition, when, when the opposition tried to take power by violent uh, means. And there was a person called Oscar Figueroa. And he, he was just walking past an opposition demonstration or an opposition riot on his way home. And people uh, started shouting at him. They said that he was Chavista. And, uh, and then they set upon him, they set him on fire, they attacked him, they punched him, they, uh, they, they put him down on, on the ground, they set him on fire, and they, uh, they basically killed him. He died from his uh, burns a few days later in hospital. And his only crime was that he was uh, dark, dark skin or darker skin than the people in that demonstration. He looked poor, and therefore... By implication, in the minds of these uh, opposition demonstrators, he was a Chavista. Uh, and so you can, you can see how, from their point of view, it's not just me saying it, but from the point of view, people who are poor, who are dark-skinned, they are Chavistas, and they need to be lynched, because they cannot be uh, argued with, they cannot be convinced, and they need to be eradicated. Because This is the, the, the mode of thinking of a widespread layer in the opposition, not, not only amongst the ranks of the opposition, but also at the, at the level of their, of their own uh, uh, leadership. Uh, so clearly, race and class plays an extremely important role in, in all of this. 
in all of this, in, in this conflict, it's getting Bolivarian revolution and this so-called democratic uh, opposition. And with all this misinformation out there, how can our listeners how can our listeners stay in touch and understand what's truly happening and the people in Venezuela? Well, I will say that with the experience we have, even from recent times, people in general should be very skeptical and very critical of what the mass media are telling us. It's not so much that the mass media always lie. They always uh, tell direct lies about what is happening abroad or at home. Uh, most of the times, they they uh, they use different methods, like uh, they tell half of the truth, or they only tell one side of the truth, or they highlight and exaggerate one aspect in order to to mold the uh, public uh, opinion. So first of all, we we must be very critical in what we read. We must question the motives of the people who are telling us things. Why are they telling us? We, we should look into the record of people. Like, for instance, if, if a person like Elliot Abrams is appointed as the person in charge of restoring democracy in Venezuela, uh, it is worth looking at his past record. This is a person who was uh, uh, charged and uh, found guilty twice of lying to Congress on the Iran-Contra scandal, who oversaw, in the name of the United States, the cover-up of human rights abuses in Central America in the 1980s and in the early 1990s, who was part of the organization of the Iraq invasion under George W. Bush. And so, if he now talks about humanitarian aid and democracy, we can only be uh, very skeptical about his real motivations. And then we should look, uh, try to look for alternative sources of information. We, shall, we should try to, to listen to what people in Venezuela are really saying. These days, with uh, social media and alternative communication means, this is relatively simple, or it's, or it's easier than what it used to be in, in the past. The domination of the mass media over our access to information is, is very powerful, but it, it can now be circumvented by many different means. So I will uh, strongly advise listeners of this uh, podcast to be very critical of what they hear in the mass media and to also look for other sources of information. And, and don't believe them, but, but just... Uh, examine them in a critical way, in the same way that you examine the mass, the mass media. And how can folks support the Bolivarian Revolution and get involved in the Hands Off Venezuela campaign? Well, the Hands Off Venezuela campaign is present in about 30 different countries around the, around the world. We have a website, which is called handsoffvenezuela.org. And uh, you can find the information. But we're not just the only organization out there campaigning for Venezuela. And uh, I will encourage people to get active. It might seem a little thing, but the power of public opinion in the West uh, is important. Uh, it might not necessarily stop a war, but it might make things more difficult for the warmongers uh, to carry out the designs. And also, it will help people in Venezuela realize that they're not alone and that this is not a war 
or confrontation between Venezuela and the United States, but, but rather a confrontation between that is that is designed and, and led and spearheaded by the U.S. administration. That the people in the United States do not necessarily agree with this. They do not necessarily have the same interests as as the ruling. Uh, capitalist class in the United States, which controls the government, the mass media, and uh, the main uh, me- means of communication and and, um, and capitalist uh, enterprises. So it is important also from that point of view to become uh, involved. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today and telling our listeners the truth about what's happening. Well, it was a pleasure to be with you, and uh, I thank you very much for this uh, opportunity to address uh, the ordinary working people of the United States. And I would like to finish by saying one thing. I mean, you, you have to think about uh, this question in the following terms. Is the, the people who are telling you that there is a dictator in Venezuela and that he's preventing humanitarian aid from coming in and that we must intervene in order to restore democracy, is the same people who are preventing the people in the United States from having free health care for all, free education for all, uh, a decent living wage for all, or preventing uh, migrants from coming into the country. And when they slip through the border, they're putting them in cages, separating the children from the parents. So if these people are attacking you on so many different fields, do you think that their interests and motivations when they are talking about Venezuela really what they're saying? They're really defending democracy abroad when they are defending uh, racism and discrimination at home? Uh, just ask yourself these questions and you'll be, uh, you'll be closer to the truth. Thank you. And to our listeners, to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics brand new podcast joint series on Venezuela, make sure to subscribe to both podcasts on iTunes. Check out our websites at brandnewcongress.org and millennialpolitics.co and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.